Hello, welcome to episode number 122 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Sinem Adar. She's an associate in the Center for Applied Turkey Studies at the SWP Think Tank in Berlin. And she's the author of a number of very interesting articles in recent months, looking at the hard and soft power aspects of Turkish foreign policy in both Europe and the Middle East, as well as the more recently rising temperature in the East Mediterranean, where Turkey's been waving a big stick of late. In the conversation, we talk about the increasing militarization of Turkey's stance as well as the factors behind it, including domestic political developments and the broader regional power vacuum that's opened up, giving ambitious regional rivals more opportunities to flex their muscles. But before we get started, first let me remind you that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras, including transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, including a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal which gets you 35% off the price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. As a member you also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send out to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper into the subject. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Sinem. Adar. The overarching theme of the recent period has been a militarization of Turkey's foreign policy, with diplomacy very much taking a back seat. So I started by asking Sinem what she thinks is behind that militarization. Should we put the emphasis more on domestic or international factors? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think it's a combination of different factors. Scholars and experts emphasized Erdogan's efforts to maintain domestic popularity, Ankara's attempts to recalibrate Turkey's position in a changing regional order, and others highlighted identity-based shifts rooted in Islamist, quote-unquote, neo-Ottomanist and nationalist ideologies. These all play the role, but still remain incomplete to explain the timing of the shift, because I think most of these factors have already been there before the shift happened. So we see the shift very clearly and visibly since um, the coup attempt in 2016. So with the coup attempt, the first thing that changed, I think, or that became more visible was the kind of like the mentality and the mindset of the ruling elites in Turkey and also the changing alliances within the state apparatus. Now, I should probably, before I elaborate on the first aspect, the mentality, I should say that Turkey's deployment of hard power 
or threat to deploy hard power is not unique to this uh, the last couple of years. Now, if we go back in history, we see uh, different moments where actually Turkey either deployed hard power or threatened different countries to deploy hard power. We see that with the invasion of Cyprus, for instance, in 1974. We see that with the threats against Syria in 1998 to invade around the conflict over PKK. Again, in 1936-37, concerning the conflict over Antioch, Hatay, uh, again with Syria. So there were these individual moments in Turkish history where Turkish ruling elites used hard power or at least used the discourse of hard power. But I think what happened since the coup attempt in 2016 is that this, but in Turkish is called the, the, the mentality around Devletin Bekasa, the efforts to maintain the perseverance of the state. So that menta- mentality really captured the state and almost became a, one of the primary components of foreign policy design. And we see that in a speech Erdogan delivered in October 2016 to the neighborhood, the locally elected neighborhood heads in Turkish called Muhtars, he announced the Turkey's changing security policy, which now is identified by scholars as forward defense or preemptive strike. And in that speech, he basically very explicitly says, we are no longer going to wait for outside powers to take care of our concerns. We are going to basically pull Turkey by its own bootstraps. We are going to be more proactive. And since then, you see this emphasis on proactive foreign policy more and more in the writings of pundits and pro-government journalists. And why the coup attempt is kind of like an important critical juncture is because I think it is the moment where Turkey's collective status anxiety also really captured the psychology of the ruling elites because often the common complaint about the traditional partners, i.e. the US and, and Europe, is that they didn't really understand the concerns, security concerns of Turkey during the coup attempt. And it goes, of course, earlier to the 2014 when the US allied with YPGPYD in northern Syria. That was also kind of like interpreted by the ruling elites as a sign that the traditional partners of Turkey were leaving Turkey alone. So this perception that Turkey is alone, I think, became very strong with the coup attempt. So that's kind of like the mindset. And since then, the rhetoric has been that Turkey is in its second independence war. So it's basically a death or life issue that we need to uh, protect ourselves from external and internal threats. So that's the mindset that drives the ruling elites. But I think one important, the second component that came to the forefront with the coup attempt was the changing alliances within the state apparatus. I mean, you know that the the Erdogan's alliance with the Gulenists started to kind of crumble since 2013. And the coup attempt in a way allowed Erdogan to get into another alliance with different factions within Turkey's security and bureaucratic apparatus with different ideological and partisan orientations. But what I think keeps these different groups and factions together is their commitment to Turkey's national um, sovereignty and territorial integrity. Basically, the groups that are known as Ulusalcılar in Turkey and in Turkish. So that's kind of like that new set of alliance, I think, was the second important component that explains the shift to more militaristic foreign policy.
So we've seen ramped up defence investments really in recent years, and there's been this development of a much more sophisticated domestic military industrial complex, essentially. And uh, we're not just talking about armed and unarmed drones here, which have caught the headlines and have been, you know, deployed in uh, in Syria and Libya and elsewhere. Uh, there's a kind of bigger thing going on, really, that's been going on for a number of years. And Turkey's become a big net exporter of weapons uh, and defence products. How important is that in kind of changing the horizons, essentially, and, and giving the current Turkish uh, authorities the kind of uh, ability, really, to be a more sort of proactive player in the, in the region? Mm-hmm. I see the the developments in the defense industry as an enabling factor of the shift behind to militaristic foreign policy. Enabling in two senses. First is that Turkey can do it. For instance, if a threat is given to a country to militarily invade that country, Turkey can do it because of the developments in the defense industry. That's kind of like, I think, the opinion of the ruling elites. And the second is that it also created a perception among, again, the ruling elites of kind of like the Turkey's, in a way, uh, militaristic grandiosity. Uh, and that goes back to the first point, actually, that capability and the capacity of Turkey to do so, to pull itself by its own bootstraps, going back to that mindset. But as I said, although we see the, the real expansion of the defense industry since the mid-2000s, I think the roots of it or the realization of the state elite that Turkey should have an indigenous defense industry actually happened much earlier. The first, I think, wake-up call was... 1974 when Turkey invaded Cyprus and then US put an arms embargo on Turkey. So that was kind of like the first wake-up call for the state elites. And the second was after the end of the Cold War, mainly because of the conflicts in the in, in its immediate neighborhoods, but also the armed conflict between the Turkish army and the Kurdish guerrilla PKK prompted Turkey to continue its defense in investments during the 1990s. So in a way, the period since the mid-2000s, late 2000s, is the third phase in a long accumulating period in which first realization that Turkey should be stronger in terms of its military industry complex and second is when basically that realization was put into implementation. So really what we're doing here we're painting a picture of a number of factors really coming together. There's also, I suppose, a more cynical sort of domestic explanation that some might make. And that is that um, this increasingly ambitious sort of regional posture is one way for the government to simply hold on to power, pumping up nationalism and military adventurism, projecting a more belligerent worldview is uh, quite a good way, a tried and tested way of keeping uh, voters loyal. What do you make of that argument? I mean, I think that argument has a valid point. And going back to the the second element about the coup attempt, about this the changing alliances within the state, I think that was a moment of log rolling between President Erdogan and these different factions within the Turkish security apparatus. Exactly in order to basically hold on to his power, Erdogan, in a way, gave in to the nationalist and ultra-nationalist demands of these factions. So in that sense, I think the argument, the argument that you just mentioned is true, but it is is incomplete. So there is some sort of like an exchange between different groups that are sitting in the driving seat of foreign policy today. For Erdogan, yes, it is a matter of holding on to power, definitely. For other groups, it is more than that. And that's also why I think even in a post-Erdogan scenario, Turkey's foreign policy posture, it might basically choose to appeal more to diplomatic ways and so on, but its claims and demands in Syria and in Libya and in Eastern Mediterranean, I don't expect them to change. 
Now, you recently wrote a really interesting and original article on Turkey's military interventions into northern Syria. And specifically, this was about their domestic political ramifications, basically how Turkey's presence in northern Syria and the administrative and military practices in Syria that are associated with that are creating political and economic beneficiaries in Turkey, as well as contributing to the government's kind of authoritarian tilt. Um, I'll quote from that piece. Uh, You say, quote, among the beneficiaries are the Turkish military industrial complex and the construction sector, as well as various political and security factions within the Turkish state that share a strong commitment to the nation's sovereignty and territorial integrity, despite their partisan and ideological differences. The losers, on the other hand, are the Kurdish movement and anti-war activists whose civil and political rights are systematically violated. Turkish war-making efforts in northern Syria are catalysts of rising authoritarianism in Turkey and of Syria's potential future balkanization. Could you just talk about the argument that you make in that piece? How do Turkey's military interventions in Syria affect political, economic developments in Turkey and also the kind of more, I suppose, strategic outlook of Turkish decision makers? Mm -hmm. When I look at Turkey, you see very clearly from 2016, if not even earlier, the foundation of an authoritarian regime. So I basically started thinking of like whether Turkey's war efforts in Syria might have anything to do with uh, the authoritarian consolidation in Turkey. So that's how basically what Turkey is doing in northern Syria and what Turkey is doing, the ruling elites are doing within Turkey with respect to war activists, with respect to Kurds, etc., are related to one another or whether they can be related to one another. So that's kind of like the background to the article. Now, when we ask the question, like, who really benefits from Turkish presence in northern Syria, I think the answer is quite clear. I mean, yes, it is true that most of the population supports Turkish presence, Turkish military presence in northern Syria, mainly because of the perceived Kurdish threat in northern Syria. But still, in terms of, like, material and actual benefits, you actually see that certain elites benefit from this. It's, as you said, it's the military-industrial complex, but in the specific case of Syria, the benefits to the military-industrial complex were more symbolic in the sense that Turkey showed to the outside world its military capabilities and cap- capacities by being involved in Syria. And that was, I think, the Idlib clashes with the Syrian regime in March 2019 was a very kind of stark example of that showing off moment. Because since then, Turkish drones have been on international media, for instance, and the Turkish military capabilities and so on. In addition to this, the construction sector has also been one of the main beneficiaries but construction sector, interestingly, has also been one of the main beneficiaries of or will become or looking forward to becoming one of the main beneficiaries of Turkish presence in Libya too, for instance. So in that sense, it's kind of like the military-industry complex and the construction sector become or emerge as the as the important beneficiaries of Turkey's war efforts. Now, when we come to the question of who loses, the very verb lose is, of course, very strong. When I say losing, I mean curtailment of civil and political rights. And there you see war activists, for instance, who were significantly silenced and suppressed, basically, whoever tweeted a critical comment about Turkey's presence in Syria or went onto the streets to demonstrate, have been either imprisoned or the lawsuits were filed against them. So that's one group. The second is the Kurdish movement. And there the link is, of course, I think with the advances of the PYD, YPG in 2014 and the establishment of an autonomous 
autonomous Kurdish region in northeast Syria. So 2014, the foundation of a Kurdish autonomous region in northern Syria. Then 2015, in the June elections in Turkey, the Kurdish left-leaning People's Democratic Party for the first time exceeded the 10% threshold and was able to send members to the parliament as under the umbrella of the party. And after that, the peace process between the Turkish between the Turkish states and the and the Kurdish guerrilla came to a halt, and in a way, a c- civil war erupted in the Kurdish southeast and east. And since then, you see a very systematic attack on the Kurdish movement. For instance, the political immunity of the parliamentarians were removed, and then the co-leaders of the party, Selahattin Demirtas and Figen Yüksekta, were prisoned. And of course, also the locally elected mayors, for instance, have been uh, removed from office. And as of May 2020, the Kurdish party has lost control of 51 out of 65 municipalities that it involved in 2019. So this basically is a very, I think, clear demonstration of a very forceful attack against Kurdish political representation, which is closely connected to what Turkey has been trying to do in, in, in northern Syria. So in a way, it has two uh, components. On the one hand, expanding its sphere of influence in uh, northern Syria, while at the same time it takes breath away from Kurdish mobilization in Turkey. You mentioned the construction sector there. It's very interesting to connect. I mean, obviously, we know that there are these connections, the areas under Turkish influence in northern Syria and the construction sector. But of course, we should also remember here that the construction sector has been absolutely key in sort of reinforcing the um, political economy of the government. The Turkish authorities engaging in sort of mutually profitable, very untransparent relations with the construction sector at home. Um, And it's really interesting to connect that to an overseas adventure basically uh, across the border uh, and to maybe even possibly see the same thing happening. I just wonder if we could say something similar for Libya as well, because as you mentioned a bit there, Turkey as some people say that it's motivated by, uh, among other things, recouping previously signed construction contracts that are worth you know, billions of dollars that it signed before the civil war broke out over there. And also there's obviously the energy interests that Turkey has there and extending its sovereignty in the East Mediterranean. Just wonder if you could talk about the kind of more raw political interests that Turkey may have in, in Libya as well. About the construction sector, you are absolutely right. I think it actually saw the expansion of Turkey's construction investments or exporting of Turkey's uh, construction investments serves two purposes. On the one hand, exactly what you just said, that construction sector lies at the very heart of, I think, the government's clientelistic networks. And the second is that it's, in a, I mean, given the economic woes that Turkey is in, in a way, it's a way to, I think, pump energy to the like the already declining economy of of the country just one thing about syria before i moved to libya it was interesting for instance when president towards the end of 2019 uh, at a un meeting in new york he basically that was the first time when he announced the turkey's reconstruction plans in northern syria that basically in this uh, the so-called safe zone that turkey has the control over that turkish construction agency 
Presidency, Tika, is planning to build refugee cities with full infrastructure, schools, hospitals, roads, mosques, etc., etc. It is very doubtful that Turkey will do that, but I think that's kind of like one of the examples in which the government's clientelistic efforts come together with its efforts to um, revitalize Turkish economy. Now, going to Libya, yes, one of the, I think, motivations or the purposes of Turkish presence or Turkish engagement in the Libyan war is this, that the construction companies have been building in, in Libya. Now, it's interesting, actually, during the period between 1980 and 1989, 56% of construction investment, Turkish construction investment abroad, was done in Libya. That's the period of Özal government and later the president. And that was also a period in a way which was similar to this period in terms of like Turkey's ambitions to become a regional power in its neighborhood in the Middle East and North Africa. And it's interesting that basically the large, the overwhelming majority of the construction investments happened in, in Libya. Now, I think in June there was an interview, there was a piece in Deutsche Welle. And in that piece, they interviewed also the head of the Turkish Construction Association, who basically said that we are ready to go to Libya and we will go there voluntarily. We will go there voluntarily and we will also work well. And he also said that since 1972, this was the first time when Turkish construction companies started investing in Libya. They had work that amounted to $40 billion. And with the Turkish engagement in the Libyan war, they see a promise for at least $50 billion worth business opportunities. So that's one dimension of why Turkey is in Libya, to keep that clientelistic networks going on, etc. Now, in addition to that, I think Turkey is also in Libya, related to its economic, its own economic woes, because I think Ankara has its eyes on the resources of Libya as well, mainly oil and gas resources. Third reason is, of course, uh, Eastern Mediterranean. So Turkey signed, as you know, uh, exclusive economic zone agreement with Libya at the end of 2019. And at the same time, it also signed the military cooperation agreement. But probably the military cooperation agreement was some sort of like an exchange for the exclusive economic zone agreement. And with that, with the signing of the economic exclusive zone agreement, in a way, Turkey obstructed the efforts of the cooperation between Cyprus, Israel, Egypt, and Greece to build the East Met pipeline that would basically carry gas from East Eastern Mediterranean to Europe bypassing Turkey. So that's kind of like this is why Turkish presence in Libya is vital for Turkey. As a way, it, it provides, I think, the Turkish ruling elites a leverage in the negotiations and conflict with mainly Cyprus, Greece, Egypt, and also now France in Eastern Mediterranean. And last but not least, a final objective, in my opinion, for Turkish presence in Libya also has to do with President Erdogan's aspirations to position Turkey as the leader of the Muslim world. So in a way, Libya provides the access to Turkey to North Africa and in a way also positioning itself in Libya against United Arab Emirates and Egypt. He strengthens his rhetoric of being the patron of the Muslim world and Turkey being the leader of the Muslim world.
that feeds in nicely to the next question, really, because you've <laughs> written and researched a fair bit on uh, Turkish soft power. And this um, has deeper roots and sort of works in tandem with the hard power aspects, as in Libya there. And there are many different angles to it, you know, media, think tanks, just the rhetoric of political leaders, you know, TV series, highly publicized humanitarian work. And um, much of this stuff has really developed just over the last 10 or so years. And a lot of it is sort of systematically aimed at gaining global recognition of uh, Turkey as the leader of the Muslim world, a patron of uh, Muslim masses worldwide. Just talk about this aspect in relation to that kind of soft power push. One of the areas I think that give really important clues about Turkey's aspirations to become the leader of the Muslim world is Turkey's changing diaspora policies. I mean, Turkish state has always, Turkish governments and the Turkish states have always been interested in the Turkish diaspora, especially living in Europe, especially particularly in Germany and some of the other continental European countries, such as the Netherlands, Belgium, Austria. But there is a significant shift starting from the late 2000s, early 2010s. And that shift has to do with, I think, the kind of like the changing definition of the diaspora. Now, in the earlier periods preceding AKP, the diaspora was mostly defined along ethnic lines. But during the AKP rule, starting from late 2000s, you see a shift towards a more kind of broader definition of the diaspora, which is mainly based on shared religion. And in that sense, the ruling government's diaspora policies not only cater to migrants from Turkey and their foreign-born children, they also cater to non-Turkish Muslims all around. And one very good example of it is actually what has been happening in the U.S. For instance, the INET has been opening mosques in the last couple of years, and uh, certain NGOs that are very close to Erdogan's family, like Turgev, Turgev, etc., they were buying land to build youth dormitories, etc. In a way, one can interpret this as kind of like AKP co-opting tactical tools and strategies from the Gülenist network in ways to promote its own ideology or ideological orientation. So that's kind of, I think, an important area where uh, we see um, Turkey's soft power policies. Now, in addition to this, there was also some sort of mobilization at the elite level, which I find actually fascinating, through a, a combination of civil society organizations, lobby organizations, and universities, which mainly function around the discourse of combating Islamophobia. And you see, for instance, if you look at SETA, for instance, one of the pro-AKP think tanks, which also has offices in the US and in Europe and also in the Middle East, have been published, publishing sorry, um, Islamophobia reports, annual Islamophobia reports since 2016. And they basically, after the publication of each report every year, they basically announce it to the public. So you see that it's kind of like a creation of a public space in which Turkey needs the combat against Islamophobia so that and through that they in a way I think with the activities of these elite groups a certain form of knowledge was trying to be established and circulated and that knowledge has to do with what we talked earlier about Turkey being the leader of the Muslim world and President Erdogan being the patron of the Muslim masses. I mean the very final example of it in my opinion is also the reconversion of the Hagia Sophia into a mosque for instance besides the nationalist and the nativist elements in the decision to 
to reconvert Ayasofya into a mosque, there is also a very strong transnationalist element. That's why, for instance, the message sent to the Arab countries were significantly different from the message sent to the European countries. Uh, the message in English was different from the message in Arabic, which basically emphasized that the opening of Ayasofya, reconversion of Ayasofya into a mosque is the harbinger of the freedom of Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, for instance. So that in that sense, it's kind of like this multi-layered policies or tactics towards establishing Turkey as the leader of the Muslim world. Now, to what extent this will work? I think it's an open question, especially given the isolation of Turkey in the international arena. But I think despite the shift to militaristic foreign policy, the soft power aspect is still an ongoing aspect of Turkish um, foreign policy. One of the interesting comparisons that you've made on this theme is of Erdogan sort of striking the same kind of pose, really, as an old school third worldist strongman, like a kind of modern day NASA. And there's almost, you know, this kind of old school third worldist rhetoric repackaged for the 21st century. It's um, this kind of counter hegemonic rhetoric that frames Turkey as this benevolent and humanitarian sponsor of anti-imperialist, uh, anti-Western resistance, you know, often talking about protecting the innocent, being the voice the voiceless and being this you know very strongly uh, revisionist voice speaking truth against the uh, hypocritical liberal hegemons of the west and i think the potency and emotional force of that sort of third worldism is sometimes underestimated by uh, western observers but you note it throughout your work just wonder if you could comment on that side of things yeah, no, absolutely. I think there is also a very strong anti-imperialist element. And that anti-imperialist and anti-Western element, I think, is also one of the um, kind of like the overarching component of the new alliance since the 2016 as well. Like one of the areas, I think, where you see that kind of anti-imperialist discourse and Turkey being the benevolent actor and so on is the uh, Turkey hosting slightly more than three and a half million refugees. So in each conversation that comes up, like it's basically in all other country in the world, especially in the West, does that, but Turkey does it as the benevolent actor and so on. It has to do with positioning Turkey also in not only the, this benevolent actor, but also, I think, an independent and a strong nation state. So definitely it plays a very important role, I think, in, in, in the government's discourse. But again, to what extent it will succeed, I think it's an open question. <laughs> Yeah. And there's an irony there as well, because, you know, on the other hand, arguably, Turkey is currently itself trying to sort of flex its muscles as a, almost an imperial power across borders. So uh, there's that side of things as well. I suppose in all, in all that we're talking about here is that there's this overarching theme, really, which is expanding Turkish power. And underneath that, a guiding idea of Turkey sort of returning to a, an imagined idea of uh, geopolitical glory, essentially. So people sometimes talk about uh, neo-Ottomanism, and uh, often that term is rather simplistic and vague, um, sometimes referring to completely different phenomena and ideas. But I think there's definitely a sense that it's one of um, several regional powers, really, who feel that the, the the wind is in their sails, essentially, and it's gearing up, preparing to take a bigger role. And really, it's able to do that because this vacuum has opened up for it to do that in recent years with, you know, the retreat of the US and the, uh, you know, much commented on collapse of the uh, liberal order. And Turkish decision makers really do seem keenly aware of this broader context. And indeed, they are welcoming of some of these changes. Just wonder if you could talk about that, you know, how important is this larger context when it comes to understanding these recent developments in mm -hmm. uh, Turkish foreign policy? policy, this increasing ambition that we're seeing. 
Yeah, I think it definitely um, constitutes an important pillar of the the ma- mentality of the Turkish decision makers, and and I think I have been observing that it is more and more explicitly stated in the writings of Turkish think tankers, uh, pro-government think tankers, and also the pro-government journalists, that what Turkey is doing is nothing more than filling the vacuum that was left by the withdrawal of the U.S. and that Turkey is able to read the codes of the changing liberal order. So that's kind of like the official discourse at the moment, which is basically moving towards a more multipolar world in which countries like China, Russia, etc. are becoming the hegemon actors. So what Turkey is doing just fits into that changing framework. And I mean, I think there is a partial truth in that. But at the same time, I think the real question that should be asked is that even if this assumption holds that the world, the global order is changing towards a multipolar world, it's a leaderless world with the withdrawal of the US and etc. And here now I speak more as a Turkish citizen. The, the real question there is that even if Turkey wants to assert its independence for one reason or another, is this the way to do that? And what is basically in the medium to long term, what is being lost by this kind of like aggressive and expansionist foreign policy and attitude? Because it's not only also attitude, it's almost like not caring enough to pay attention to and to abide by certain diplomatic rules. We saw that with the opening of the borders in February, the Greek borders for the passage of the migrants. We saw that when Joseph Borrell, the EU High Commissioner, was in Turkey a couple of weeks ago, when at the end of the uh, press statement with the Turkish Foreign Minister, he was given by the Turkish Foreign Minister as a gift in a very fancy box, hand sanitizer to the surprise, to his own surprise. He couldn't even know how to react. So this kind of like moments of symbolic insult, it's almost, I think, takes away any space to take Turkey seriously in the international realm. And I think this is also why there has been a lot of, in the last couple of weeks, there has been a lot of writing about Turkey being a rock state, Turkey being a problem, Turkey being, and that's kind of like now, I think, the emerging discourse in the West, which which in a way accentuates Turkey's international isolation. So even if the assumptions about the global order are true, And to a certain extent, I think it's true. Turkey has been, there were moments in the past since the 2000s where the trust towards its traditional partners have been eroded. Even if all these are true, I think the methods are fundamentally mistaken. And that's, I think, where the problem lies. Just wonder, what about some of the other challenges that may lie ahead? You know, so there are these grand ambitions that we all know about, but there is going to be a resistance to this, presumably from various regional rivals and whatnot. And also there's a big economic commitment that's being made. And, you know, the fundamentals of the Turkish economy don't look good at the moment. So just wonder if you could talk about what some of these challenges may be in Turkey, basically becoming the global hegemon, as uh, Yeni Shafak would um, maybe uh, (laughs) predict is inevitably going to happen. I I mean, I think first and foremost is the economic situation, which doesn't look bright at all. It would be a real challenge. But economic crisis in and by itself doesn't lead to a change in policies. Neither does it lead to a political change towards basically implementing more liberal democratic principles. And one good example of it is the cases of Indonesia and Malaysia, which basically were both hit with a very severe economic crisis, but one of the countries... Uh, made a transition to a democratic kind of uh, rule, while the other, i.e. Malaysia, even consolidated its authoritarian rule more. So economic crisis is a challenge. 
but how deepening economic crisis evolved is, I think, an open empirical question. It very much depends on how how elites, both within Turkey, but also outside of Turkey, choose to deal with the current government. The second, I think, is both Erdogan's and the AKP's growing legitimacy crisis, especially in the aftermath of the 2019 local elections, where AKP basically lost the major metropolitan cities, Istanbul and Ankara, to the opposition. So that's another factor that would, I think, cause a challenge to the ruling regime and i.e. through that challenge to Turkey's grandiose aspirations to be a regional power. And the other one, I think the fragility of the interstate alliances, because this is a really, I mean, this coalition is at the moment ongoing, but it is extremely fragile because mainly because it's a very loose coalition, I think. And there are, there are a lot of diverging interests, even though they basically overlap on the idea that Turkey's national uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity are under threat and it needs to be protected in terms of how to protect it and who to ally with and so on. There are certain divergences and conflicts among these elites within the state. So that also gives, I think, a significant level of fragility to the ruling government. Yeah, so I think these, these three are the main challenges Another factor would be at the international level, what happens in the US in November with the, in the elections. Because obviously, I think Trump and Erdogan becoming the quote-unquote bros. And that's what I meant by the elites in the international arena, that how they would basically react to and interact with the, the Turkish government would definitely shape what will happen in the coming months. But one thing that is quite clear is that the current government in Turkey is in a phase of decline. But at the same time, they still have, it still has three years until the next elections. And I think there is also a significant awareness of the declining legitimacy of the government and also the declining charisma of President Erdogan, which has been extremely essential in remaining in power. So that awareness, I think, might push the state elites to become even more aggressive in the coming period to go on with the, with these kind of like really ambitious aspirations and aims. That was Sinem Adar. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 122. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use which is very useful for other people in finding the podcast. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so please send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, don't forget to check out Turkey Book Talk's partner initiative Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoch and Diego Cupolo, friends of Turkey Book Talk. It's a very useful weekly package that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days arriving in your email inbox every thursday turkey recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns search for turkey recap on twitter to subscribe but until our next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks thank you very much for listening